Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bielke. Well, folks, we've had plenty of comments on the Paracast forums about Nancy Talbot's appearance on last week's episode. Of course, Nancy Talbot has been a longtime investigator of the crop circle phenomenon, and she's gained quite a reputation there. But then she's telling us about the mysterious case of one Robert Vandenbroek, and he is a psychic who apparently has the ability to conjure up crop circles, and he's involved in all sorts of other things, and you know, it gets to be a pretty strange mystery. So we have Nancy Talbot being very credible in one category, but on the other category, hmm. Well, certainly a lot of the uh, forum members felt really negatively about the episode, and there were some uh, some Dutch people, some Dutch listeners showing up on the forums who had a whole lot to say about Robert, and not a whole lot of it was good. It was really interesting to get an insight and the point of view from people inside of that country who uh, say that he had a TV show. It's funny how Nancy didn't, didn't bring that up, that at one point he had been on some major network with his, from what I gather, his own TV show, and uh, and then some on some other shows. There were some, uh, some posts on the forums with some appearances he had on other shows that definitely brought up the problem of Nancy's stance that the father was extremely protective of Robert. It certainly didn't look that way based on the appearances he was making on Dutch television. Uh, apparently uh, not having the greatest reputation inside of the country. And, you know, Gene, towards the end of the episode, I specifically asked about money changing hands. And I know that I was very concerned. I think you had some concerns, too, about her answer regarding that the father was asking people for donations, though Robert didn't want any money. But apparently the father, who, from what I gather, is a banker, also very interesting, um, that there was money exchanging hands. And, you know, when I hear about stuff like that, it, it takes me back to the case of Arigo, where, where here was a guy doing some interesting work, fascinating work, and never accepting a dime for anything he did. And in the past, I know we've been questioned about this. Do I personally feel that if people aren't seeking money, does that increase their credibility in my eyes? And the answer is obviously it does. When you always try to look for people's motives for doing things. And when you've got a situation where there there is cash coming in, there's a, an overprotective parent who... Is, is sort of managing business affairs. Well, see what what has happened just in the last week, um, now that we're doing this show and it's going to air pretty soon after we do it. Look at the ugliness. Boy, you want to talk about the ugliness of Michael Jackson's father coming out to the press and basically like, a, in Yiddish, a real grubber. You know, just coming out and making it so that he... It's like he's more interested in the, the financial benefits and bonanza that his son's death will bring versus the fact that, you know, his son died. The guy didn't see, seem real disturbed. And I'm not comparing the Jackson patriarch with this, uh, this guy Robert's father, but I, I get very concerned when I see stuff like that where the parent's looking how to make some bucks off the kid. 
Well, unfortunately, there's nothing new about that. I mean, if you go back through showbiz history, more recently, what, Britney Spears was fighting with her parents and all sorts of things. You go back through the years, Judy Garland, for example, her mother was a stage mother. You have these child stars who gain notoriety and financial rewards, and then their parents find all sorts of ways to exploit them. In fact, a lot of stars seem to be more exploited after they're dead. No, it always screws the kids up pretty bad, pretty hardcore. So it's supposed to bring up some concern, and it does bring up some concern. And a number of the listeners also talked about how you know, Nancy had sort of one attitude in the first part of the show. We were talking about crop circle stuff. And one of our listeners brought up this very interesting point when I asked about the, the water retention characteristics of the ground that they had tested. She said, well, we didn't, we didn't test for that. It, it occurs to me, Gene, that, you know, and, and it occurred to some of our forum members that Nancy's scientific method lacks some certain aspects of science that would make it sound, rational, and productive. And certainly, when we got to the topic of Robert... Uh, it really seemed like all logic just flew out the window. And, you know, at that point, okay, look, you want to say that you're researching this guy, which you're sort of not. You're not... The minute you sort of thrust yourself into being a participant, and then getting testy when asked what I thought were reasonable questions. You know, I, I have to tell you something, Gene. There was another forum for another show where somebody was commenting that they should listen to the recent episodes of the Paracast, even with David's prickliness. I believe that was the word that was deployed, that somehow uh, I'm not nice and that I'm testy. And I think to myself, what sort of society do we live in where if you want to ask a reasonable question, if you'd like to have just a tiny slice of logic with your answer... This makes you prickly or testy or unreasonable. What sort of weird universe do we live in, Gene? What happened? Uh, well, we're so politically correct these days. You can't say anything. You can't express an emotion because someone will be insulted. You know, you can't tell a joke about a particular class of people because they will be insulted unless that's your class. And even then you're in trouble. You got to look at everything and say, gee, gosh, golly, gee whiz, what the heck? It boggles the mind. And, you know, of course, we can't go off into the tangent bringing this up in the context of the political reality, because then people will start to say that, oh, we veer off into politics as if we could divorce ourselves from politics. Well, you can't. How can you talk about, well, UFO secrecy, government disinformation, disclosure? Man, it's all about politics. Well, we weren't talking about disclosure or government secrecy, but the minute two people are involved, you have politics at play. You have people with agendas. I just, I've come to sort of realize, Gene, that, and this is not the whole world. This seems to be uh, something that goes on throughout the world, but it really has become a sign of the American mentality. This idea that we're supposed to live in a fantasy bubble. We're supposed to sort of not disregard the rest of the world, but deprioritize it because we're the best. It strikes me as such a seriously provincial attitude, especially at a time when 
communications are global. I mean, we get email all the time from people in Australia, in New Zealand, in the UK. Uh, I just got a really interesting heads up from some people in the Balkans uh, talking about how much they love our show. So, you know, we're at a point where communications technology it really should have brought us to the point where even the sense of nationalism, what the heck does it mean anymore? You know, when you say that, people go, well, oh, you're talking about one, one world government, one world government. It's like, no, but it is one world. It's one planet. When are we going to learn anything from this? I'm just amazed how in the era of the incredible advances in, in technology overall, Gene, it's almost given people a license to be more ignorant about things. And, and I, I don't understand how that works. And I, and I tell you, it gets me very frustrated to the extent where I have gone and done a show, though I haven't done it for the last couple of weeks. I will be doing it uh, a couple of days after people hear this. But I have gone and done a show called Angry Human where I just vent my feelings about this. And, and it's not, it's funny how I call it my political show, but ultimately I sort of trash everybody on there. I don't give anybody a pass on that show. And, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a visceral, frustrated reaction to what I see happening in the world. And, and it, and it gets me kind of nuts. And, you know, when we talk about the paranormal stuff, right, because there's been a lot of talk on the forums about James Fox's uh, new documentary, I Know What I Saw, which is, is very good. I actually saw a fairly rough cut of it. I think I mentioned on the forums that I have seen a version of it. And actually, from what I gather based on the trailer, it's undergone a bunch of work even since I saw it. So I won't pass any kind of judgment on it yet. And we will certainly have James on soon to talk about it. But people have this feeling that one documentary like that is going to sort of blow the gates open, that uh, you know disclosure will be coming shortly after that documentary comes out. And look, I'd love for the government to come clean with what they know. But at this point, I'm resigned to the fact that the factions within our government that actually have some knowledge of what the real deal is, they're never going to come forth unless unless something catastrophic forces them to. Unless that happens. Even if there are people who are whistleblowers, it just doesn't matter. It's not on people's radar. Most people don't care about this topic. And I really think it's important for people who listen to the Paracast who obviously care enough to have sought us out to put up with any aspects of our personalities that they might find a little abrasive or prickly. Um, it's important that those people realize, and I think, Jane, many of them do, that the idea that there is going to be some magic tipping point with some sort of disclosure, it's wishful thinking, and I think it's also highly unrealistic, sadly. Yeah, they think the government knows everything and eventually will tell us everything. It's all going to happen eventually, or when they predict it will happen, it's going to be released magically and we'll know the secret about the UFOs. And, and people need to get used to that. And I think that it also brings to the, to the forefront the point that people need to realize that they're on their own in this world. This idea that the government is going to 
somehow make our lives magically better, that it's going to improve the conditions under which we live, which for the most part, if you live in the United States, uh, you know, chances are you're not starving. And that already puts you in a pretty good place with regards to a, a realistic appraisal of what life is like on this planet. Yeah, and that gets back to our whole sense of isolation from the world and not realizing how the rest of the world really is, especially third world countries where, where things are just rough, rough beyond what anybody certainly listening to this show in the States or Australia or, or, or New Zealand or UK, life that's rough beyond any way that we have to deal with on a daily basis. I mean, really, truly, and this is not some infomercial about send your your pennies to go feed the kids in Africa. Now, this is a realistic appraisal of the way that the third world lives. That they, they don't have the kinds of options or luxuries that we have. They don't. They don't grapple with the issue of disclosure. They're too busy being involved with surviving to really uh, care about this. And even in our society, Gene, at this point, with unemployment numbers as they are and people losing their homes and losing everything they own uh, to exorbitant medical bills. People don't, they look at the paranormal stuff, not just UFOs, because the Paracast is about topics other than UFOs, but they look to this stuff as entertainment. They're not looking to these topics for any great answers about their lives. Tragically, I think. Uh, most of the people who are looking for answers are, are, are turning to their temples and their churches and their synagogues and their, their religious gurus. They are going to much better marketed, much more branded answers for the meaning of life, the universe, and, and everything. And sadly, I say that sort of flinching because I recognize that certainly the topic of UFOs has become one that has strong religious overtones. And, you know, Gene, if there's ever a reason that I'm going to call you up one day and say, I don't want to do this show anymore, it's when I feel that that reality, that the, the UFO phenomenon as a religion has really overtaken the whole scene. At that point, we're just heretics. And you know what's going to happen? Someone's going to try to, to, to sling us up on a, on a piece of wood or burn us down. I mean, I think it's inevitable almost that someone's going to try to do that. You know, who knows? I mean, people have sort of already tried to do bad things to us because of the fact that we're not falling in line with the standard shtick because we have made enemies on all sides of the fence. I mean, my God, man, look at the, the, this precarious position we're in. The doe-eyed believers just hate us. They hate us. And... The debunkers, they wouldn't even acknowledge that, that people like us exist. Well, I guess we fit in that great amorphous middle, you know, the excluded middle. That was the term that Greg Bishop used for such things. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. 
It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? On the Paracast, David and I are playing catch-up. A little bit later in the show, we'll have photographer, UFO investigator Jim Delatoso joining us. But right now we decided to take our shoes off, sit back, relax, and after so many episodes where we haven't talked much about the things that have happened around us, we thought we'd take a little bit of a break, maybe sit down and have a beer. Well, I guess I don't drink beer. Anyway. I don't drink beers. I'm, I'm drinking uh, some kind of sparkling water from CBS. Sugar-free stuff. Beer? Ugh. No, we, don't, we haven't had a chance to do this. In fact, uh, our audience should know that I gave you a hard time about today, in fact. I said, you know what, can't we, like, take a week off already? How many shows have we done? Like, 170-something shows? We've never taken a week off. What the hell is that? You can't take time off when you have to change the world, my friend. We're here to change the world. What do you mean? Didn't God, like, take a day off when he, when he made the world? Well, we're not finished yet. Well, I don't think God was either, dude. I think, you know what, I'd like to ask our audience to get up on the forums and tell us whether or not we deserve a week off or not. Well, you know, some shows out there never take a day off. They never take a day off. You know, the way they work it is, if you have one host, of course, they get a guest host to handle the show for a week or two to give the regular hosts a chance to have a vacation. If there are two hosts, well, one will host it one week, the other will host it the other week. So maybe we should ask for volunteers from our forums to become the guest host and give you and me a week or two off. I vote for Skyler. Yes. yes. <laughs> of course, I vote for Skyler for everything, so that's sort of predictable on my part. Does he even know that we want him to do this? No, he doesn't. He'll be like, what are you talking about? He's far too smart to do it. Forget it. But I think Skyler would be a terrific guest host. Yeah, but he's too smart to have to do this thing, like, for a whole two hours. He would do a great job, but he's too smart to, like, commit himself to it. He's actually already committed to helping us with something else that we're not going to talk about yet. But, yeah, there's going to be, after after we do the show this week, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a bunch of work on something that we really should have been working on for a while now. And, and I haven't because I've been distracted with life, the universe, and everything. But uh, there's, a, there's a thing that we sort of... Uh, took over that we have to update we got ourselves into it yeah i said to david you know this is something we really should get involved in so i made the point 
and you agreed with me. <laughs> <laughs> but we we get email about it all the time. It really blows my mind. People actually send us email responding to its input form, thinking that it's the original guy, and it's us, and we get these things, and and Lord knows, man, we've done enough on the Paracast now that we have to, we sort of have to do this thing. And uh, I called up Skylar recently, and I said, hey, listen, I can't think of anybody better suited to help out with this. Are you into it? And he was like, when do we start? He was totally up for it. So we're going to get enough work out of Skylar on that thing. And people will really love it when when we do it, though, I have to tell you, uh, our guest last week, you know, she's she's in a certain place, and I don't know, Gene. You know, I we're gonna we're just all we're gonna do is make more enemies. You know, when we revamp and reintroduce that thing, all it's gonna do is just increase our hate mail. Well, when we get this thing out there, and I'm sure people are going to ask us what it is, and we're not ready to tell. But I think her status is going to have to be reconsidered. I mean, she has gained a pretty good reputation, Nancy Talbot, for being a crop circle researcher. And that's fine. But now she's latched on to this guy from Europe, and things are a little different. <laughs> Maybe he can be regarded by some as another one-armed man. I don't know. I don't know if it's that weird. I don't know what to think of this anymore. I don't know what to think of her anymore. I know that when we had her on the show before, there were a couple of points where she got a little defensive. All right, you know, I, I can certainly get defensive too. So, I'll say that I, I sort of understand where some of that comes from. All right, I don't want to be too judgmental about it. But all of the stuff that was happening when she brought up this Robert guy and her responses to things, and then when I brought up those ridiculous dust orb pictures, I mean, and and look at all of those photos. I mean. You're going to take a stance where you're totally inflexible about those and say, well, I don't agree with you. I said, well, look, I can totally reproduce these. I mean, I even, and anybody can reproduce those things. That's, it's so ridiculous. It has every hallmark of being a, a, a you know, automatic camera, not a single lens reflex camera. Flash goes off, dust, dust particulate matter near the lens is illuminated in the flash. It's, of course, uh, completely out of focus uh, because of the depth of field issues with a camera with that aperture. Well known. This is not any kind of mystery. And she's saying, no, no, I disagree with you. You're wrong. It's like, what? What is that? What? You don't want to talk about it. You're just you just know that I'm wrong. And there's no science, there's no logic, there is no rational thought behind that. It's just, no, you're attacking me and you're wrong. It's like, at that point, Gene, people would say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't know, if the baby is vomiting profusely into the bathwater to the point where the baby's insides are hanging out, I don't know if there's a baby worth saving anymore. But isn't it also true that other people in the UFO and paranormal research fields are guilty of the same thing? They kind of latch on to something maybe early in their research career or somewhere along the years, and they maintain through thick and thin, it's got to be the real thing, it's got to be authentic, you know, like MJ-12 documents, what about that? And, you know, later on they're afraid for one reason or another to admit it might be a red herring. Why can't they come out and say these things? You know, I'll tell you something that's interesting about our society. Our society seems willing 
to forgive people all sorts of heinous stuff. Really, truly. Our society is one that has a very short collective memory in many ways, though certainly they didn't feel that way about Bernie Madoff, and for good reasons. Uh, but, you know, M Michael Milken, a guy who destroyed how many lives? A guy who destroyed a great company. A guy who destroyed so many people's retirement funds. A guy who really wreaked havoc on just so many lives and is now a well-respected philanthropist. I mean, he was forgiven. How many, how many people have done how many nasty things and then they are forgiven for their sins? So we're talking about people playing in a wacky sandbox. They come out and admit that they were wrong about a case. Do you really think this is somehow going to work against them? I think that ultimately they will show themselves to be better people because of that. They will show that they're willing to be reasonable about things that they believed in, that now if there's enough evidence to show that there's reasons to have problems with it and they acknowledge that those problems are real, well, now they're shown to be logical and they're shown to be rational people. I mean, do they really think somehow this is all going to work against them? But, you know, here's the thing. I mean, in this field, they're just, honestly, Jane, there is no credibility just the fact that you're involved in this in any way already means that your credibility is sort of shot. And I think that's some, something we're going to have to get comfortable with. I still have huge problems with it. I mean, I don't talk about this topic in mixed uh, gatherings. I don't bring it up. I really don't. It's interesting how so many people who are involved in this stuff, this is like all they can talk about. Thank goodness I have lots of other interests that go even much deeper than interest in this stuff. So when I'm at a party with people, I don't have to get anywhere near this stuff for hours. I can talk about so many other things. I'm really, I'm really thankful for that because I think the minute that you do bring up these topics, even if you're the most rationable, reasonable person in the world, for the most part, people will just look at you like you've just flown over the edge of the earth. Well, I'm not embarrassed by anything I do here, but I really don't dwell on it either. I mean, as most of our listeners know, I have another show called The Tech Night Out Live. And occasionally in passing or as a humorous reference, we'll mention the Paracast. At the close of the show, I will say something like, well, don't forget to check out our other show, The Paracast, etc., etc. But otherwise, I don't dwell on it. I don't make a big point of it. I just accept it as a natural part of my life and what I do. I mean, I take... It's seriously in all that if we have any possibility at all that we have UFOs coming to our planet from other dimensions, <laughs> other star systems from another part of our planet that we don't know about. I mean, it could be a huge story, but I don't let it get me completely obsessed about it. I think that's a bad thing. And, and, and if you, like me, you have a Facebook page, I deal with this all the time. I get Facebook requests from people who listen to the Paracast, and often I hesitate. I hesitate to friend them because it's funny on on my facebook page i have three worlds converging the world of childhood friends who i've reconnected with via facebook the world of friends and technology and then the paracast crowd and there are these three completely separate worlds and they all sort of come together on my facebook page and i'll be honest there have been a few times when someone will post a comment about some paranormal-related thing or a Paracast-related thing. And I'll ask them, hey, you know what? Just send me, like, private email because my Facebook page is sort of like where 
all of my friends converge. And there are personal friends of mine who I don't really talk to about this stuff. They, they kind of have a peripheral knowledge that I have an interest in it. They sort of know, but we don't talk about it. Um, my, my closest old friend in the world, uh, my buddy Joe, who's uh, my musical collaborator, I mean, we, we rarely, if ever, talk about this stuff. You know, we, we talk about a thousand and one things, usually involving uh, analog synthesis, making noise, musical technology. Uh, that's our um, you know, technology is our common interest and passion, and music technology specifically is for both of us a a real hardcore obsession. You know, and I see Joe all the time, and we get together and we make music all the time. And uh, you know, this stuff will only come up in passing. He he might say to me, "Oh, you know, I saw a thing on CNN that there's a Larry King UFO show. You know anything about that?" And I'll be like, "Oh yeah." He's like, "Yeah, that's what I figured." And then he'll go on to the next topic. He's, we don't really, we don't focus on this stuff at all. He has minimal interest in all of it. And, you know, it's just, it's the kind of thing where he doesn't ask me about it because he doesn't really care. <laughs> well, I suppose if we knew the answer tomorrow or the UFOs landed, maybe that would make a change. But then maybe not, you know, maybe it'll be in the 24-hour news cycle. And then it will fade. It will become the 10th page story in the daily newspapers. We'll get back to our daily lives, how to pay bills, etc., etc. Okay, the aliens are here. So what? You know what Joe would say? He would say, so, dude, do they have any, like, weird, weird crazy, like, analog oscillator gear? Do they have, do they make any weird pedals? He, he would, he, I think he would really focus on it for more than a few minutes. And he would be off to, well, do they have like crazy synthesizer stuff we don't know about? And I think that's how most people ultimately really, you know, that we always talk about, well, people would or wouldn't be ready for disclosure, whatever. In today's world, sadly, and I don't know whether this is a, a good thing about our species or not, but, but honestly, realistically, I think most people would just, they'd be fascinated by it for X amount of time. And then they would worry about paying their mortgages and their electric bills. We're watching the latest episode of American Idol. Why do people always jump back to American Idol when they talk about this stuff? How many people really watch that show? I think the ratings went down somewhat over the last season. But you see, that goes back to, what, the original Amateur Hour? It was on radio, it was on TV, and that was back in, what, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And then we had Star Search, hosted by the late Ed McMahon in the... 70s, 80s, or whatever, and we all like to see unknowns become famous in show business. That's what it's all about. Well, enough of my ranting. <laughs> we never get enough of David's ranting, but enough of my ranting. Coming up next on the PowerCast, we have Jim Delatoso, longtime UFO researcher, photographer. He's also been embroiled in a couple of, shall we say, situations in the UFO field. Coming up next on the PowerCast. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. 
Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Jim Delatoso. Tell us what happened here. You were so excited to come on the PowerCast. Someone told you, don't bite your tongue. And what did you do next? I bit my tongue so hard I could hear it squeal. And now my tongue is swollen and I feel actually officially tongue-tied. Well, maybe that makes sense. You see, we have a reputation out there that we're so horrible, David and I, that people who come on the show, they get trashed. That's what happens, I guess. Really? Yeah. I've never heard that before, but was it fair when you were trashing him? Were you really taking the garbage out? We were taking the garbage out. Well, yeah. it depends on who you ask, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know. Well, well, if Oscar's in the can, you know, he doesn't, he can't see. There you go. Anyhow, I'm glad to be here. This is good. Very good. Okay, you're involved in the UFO quagmire like the rest of us. What led you to get involved in this? It was the late 70s, and as usual, my rock and roll touring and signal analysis business was not operating in the winter. I had a couple of trucks full of sound and lights that did shows with um, Beach Boys and Three Dog Night and Moody's, but you don't tour in the winter, trucks in the snow, no good. So my signal and analysis equipment and generators and other equipment I would find other jobs for. So I was working on the Shroud of Turin documentary film produced by Socrates Ballas. He heard of us and wanted us to create an interface between some of the scientific measurement equipment and his 16-millimeter film equipment. So we did. And through that process, I met people at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and the uh, Air Force Academy were working on that, and they introduced me to people from APRO, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, who were looking for a tech scout to find equipment and processes and people for analyzing UFO pictures. This was 1977 in the uh, in the winter of that year. So I said, that's good, but in order to scout it out, I've got to do it uh, part-time during the tour season and full-time next winter. So I took it on and went to trade shows, saw manufacturers, usually uh, talking about my signal and analysis. Uh, we, we rented out oscilloscopes, basically, in addition to uh, sound and lighting gear that we rented out. But under one of those auspices, I got to uh, meet the appropriate technology companies at trade shows and going to the plants and whatever, and wrote a white paper in uh, 79, which I gave at their annual conference about suggested methods for analyzing images of the unknown. And uh, within a few years, I um, had purchased uh, De Anza 6400 and some other gear um, to rent out to others and was using that gear myself to analyze pictures. But most of the time, for let's say from about 
well, 79 to the mid-80s, I was finding other people to do testing, like going to JPL and seeing Bob Post and uh, uh, Bob Nathan, seeing Wally Gentleman at Linwood Dunn's Film Effects of Hollywood Company to get their opinion on things, going to uh, Ramtech and other manufacturers, and having people that did that for a business to do it after hours on behalf of APRO and Wendell Stevens. That's the short version. Well, listeners, if you're not familiar with APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization was one of the most prestigious UFO bodies for the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. They had a lot of scientists and engineers working with them, and they specialized in not just American UFO cases, but Latin American cases. They were one of the few organizations to do that. Yes, that's right. Unfortunately, I didn't get along too well with the heads of the organization, the Lorenzans. Well, um, they met at Kitt Peak, where they uh, were both employed for decades. And Jim, you know, the, the bearded uh, Colonel Sanders-looking uh, scientist, and Coral, the um, uh, gas tank alley, you know, uh, Annie Oakley, fist-pounding, hard-drinking woman, really ran the show. She was fun, she was precise, but she wore the pants. Jim was the, the technical scientist, philosopher, that saw it as uh, an important issue to maintain science standards, where Coral's position was, just get the hell out there and get the information. I got along <laughs> with both of them well. I saw most of the time at their home, this was uh, for a three, four-year period of time. I saw him at least at least once a month. And I got to know uh, Wendell Stevens through that effort and Bob Dean and a couple of other key people that were on their board of advisors. One guy, Rick Gerdes, was at the time the uh, president and the inventor of one of the first graphics processing chips. He ran OEI Company, Optical Electronics Industries. That was the forerunner of Brooktree the graphics chip people, and he was on the board of APRO and would really comb through my white paper and my suggestions with precision before they would publish the paper. And he was the one I got to know the best, inevitably, you know, over the decades, because I still talk to him to this day. Jim and Coral have passed on. Well, actually, as I remember it better, I got along, I guess, okay with Jim, but Carl Lorenzen's another story. Annie Oakley. Yeah, Annie Oakley. Okay, moving to the present day, what do you think of some of the most significant UFO cases you've investigated? Well, there's two categories of cases, and I, I'm like a lab. You know, I, I am not a case investigator. And, and an, an investigator provides me their images. Sometimes I want to know the background of, of how the pictures were taken, what the camera is, what the optics are, who's the person. And sometimes I don't want to know, or sometimes I don't have to find out. The objective is to compare the information in the unknown picture to a database that I have of knowns. And I've spent 20 plus years creating a database like fingerprints, like pathology of known conditions, ranging from film grain and sprocket grain properties to what do flares look like, what is miniature superimposed beam splitters, what do you look for, how do you look for quantized data, if it's been um, processed and overlaid with 
aliasing or anti-aliasing in Photoshop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I take the unknown object, compare it with the same data extraction methods to get an index, like a, like a, like a record locator for fingerprints. I try to get a match. If I don't get a match, that means it's an alien. No, it means it's an unknown. It means we didn't get a match in the database, so we have an unknown object. That doesn't mean we got an alien spacecraft. UFO, unidentified flying object, has come to mean in popular culture that it's an alien spacecraft. But the most interesting cases to me are the ones where we didn't get a match, and then in that greater body of work of the all of the unknowns, finding trends, similarities amongst those. So one might think that it was the clearest picture of a flying disc or, you know, bright lights in the sky. But the most interesting pictures to me are out of the data and its patterns. A pattern of a cigar-shaped ship is seen. It has an aspect ratio of 12 to 14, you know, ratio of height to length. 12 to 14. And to we 14. see that. We see that. Jim, and within Jim, a month, we see, yes. You said 12 to 14? Yeah, 12 to 1 to 14 oh, to 1. Okay, no, you said 12 to 14, so I was going to say, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I meant that as a range. Yeah, I'm sorry, okay. I apologize. Okay. The range of 12 over 1 to 14 over 1 in that category, and frequently from the last 20% of the object, it slopes down like a cigar. So the cylinder becomes a cigar, but... We categorize those. We have those photographs. We categorize those. And then we find in the data that within two months, usually one month, we start seeing orbs, balls, like Foo Fighters, like balls, like orbs now. But we see balls. And then, and then within a couple of months, we see structured balls, command and control, intention of movement, of V formation. Now, if we have a case and it's balls or it's V and there's controversy, it was flares, it was not flares, it was hail bop, it was whatever, all that controversy, all that discussion is, is meritorious. But when you take it juxtaposed to, well, six months before, there was unstructured random balls that were seen, and six months before that, there was a cigar-shaped craft seen for half an hour falls right in the pattern. And I've been able to trace patterns like that with um, um, complete stochastic. And the taxonomy of the data really begins in 1952. French photographs, cigar craft, followed by orbs, followed by structured orbs. And it begins to, the pattern begins to increase with frequency. Might not see another cigar for four years. Then you see it it goes four years, two, two, four, four, one, one, four, one, 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 one. I'm reading off my notes here. Four. That's just what we've seen. I don't know if there's a pattern. I don't know if there's an envelope in that degree of frequency, but I know that there is an interesting pattern in cigar craft followed by orbs, unstructured orbs, random apparently random, followed by formation of orbs. 
And that's not to say that all the other cases from the controversial Billy Meyer case to the Springfield case to all those aren't really interesting, and they are. But I like data patterns that I can look at. In one case, there's always going to be controversy about did you, did you look for this? Did you do another Fourier transform on looking for grain in the background and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Any one case, there's a, it can go on forever, the controversy about it. The data is the data. So I, I don't know if I answered your question or asked and answered my own question, but the, the, the trends in that is what's become the most interesting to me, that pattern. So what you're talking about, Jim, are situations when you say cigar, then unstructured orbs, then orbs. You're talking about different segments Within a sighting, you're talking about in an area, a progression of different types of sighting that form a pattern. Which one are we talking about? Yeah, that's a very good question. There are two cases that come to mind where we see orbs coming out of the tip of the cigar, looking kind of like bubbles coming out of a bubble machine. And they appear to be floating at random, and then they vanish. We have one other photo, one other image, uh, a series, still photographs, 35 millimeter taken in Denmark, where there's a cigar craft, and later that evening, at dusk, there are three orbs that are photographed. That's the only two cases where it happens in the same day. The trends that I have seen regularly is that the cigar is sighted or photographed. And in approximately two months, within two months, there are orbs, random orbs, seen within the same area. And this has been Tbilisi, Georgia, the former Soviet Union. It's been in Belgium. It's been in South Africa. And then within, say within a year, I mean, it might be four months, it might be six months, but let's say within a year at the most, we start seeing V formations or triangle formations, structured formation of orbs. Fake Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're back with Jim Delatoso, longtime UFO researcher, photographer, and he's been studying some interesting aspects of the UFO enigma. 
such as patterns. So, for example, you get one kind of apparition and then you see other kinds. So I gather here, Jim, that we're talking about some kind of pattern that we can identify. David, can you pick up on this? Well, now, are you are you then, Jim, connecting these events? Because I think that someone might listen to this and say, well, okay, there are certain areas in the world where there are hot spots of activity, where there are recurring yeah. UFO sightings, and don't connect or, or attempt to, to discover a pattern of yeah. different morphology of craft within the sightings in that area in a time. Are you saying that, are, are you discerning a pattern then? I'm looking at statistical data. If we take police reports or UFO reports or traffic reports and log them daily, monthly, annually, and then look at all that as a timeline up on the wall, look at data and try to just make sense out of all the data, like a pattern. Well, UFOs are always seen before a hurricane, you know, where UFOs are always seen in 180 degrees, the opposite side of the world from when there's a great volcano. Something, anything that's a pattern is interesting, particularly if you apply Fourier transforms, pattern series, to the data, just like I use Fourier transforms to look at patterns in an image, pattern recognition, pattern searching, uh, it's there in the data. It, to connect the cases, one can speculate on that, but that's trying to speculate on, well, if this isn't a military aircraft, it must be extraterrestrial, so let's speculate on what the pilots of the extraterrestrial spacecraft look like. Okay, you, you can't speculate on that. I do sometimes, but I mean, that's, that's not what I, I do to look at data and speculation on connecting them. Well, it's the same cigar that's back again. Or is it that form of transportation, the cigar, is universally accepted, like the wing universally works in our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So maybe the cigar, if there's one group of extraterrestrials, there's probably a lot of them. So let's say that rules for interdimensional intergalactic travel hold true for everyone, regardless of what they might invent as a device to wrap around those rules to get here. Rules are rules. So a pattern could be that the cigar is how they get here interdimensionally. The orbs are related to materializing, and then they become a structure. That's a real fundamental speculation, but I was trying to you know, point out uh, patterns in speculating, because if it's real, if extraterrestrials are really coming here, just saying, well, we can prove that they come here is not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Why do they come here? What do they want? Are they going to do anything to us? Do they have a, a rave or a dinner on Saturday we can go to? I mean, Someone on our forums recently said that in the last 60 years of UFO research, that basically it's been a complete bust because we haven't learned anything. And I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, uh, you know, I think there are things that we, we have learned. I think that yes. learned that. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't think it's a bust. I think that the bust has been that the floodgates of information that the government may have hasn't poured out to us. And the extraterrestrials haven't come forward and exposed themselves. 
and a group of researchers, well, like ourselves or others, haven't come to a unified grand theory that explains it all, but uh, I don't think it's been a bust. It hasn't been a bust for me because I've, I've learned a lot, a lot of interesting things. I've met a lot of interesting people, and... Um, and I wanted to keep going. If it was a bus, we'd quit, right? I suppose it's also true that people get into the UFO field, they get out of it again, they're attracted back in the field, and maybe that's confusing or not. I know I've done that myself, but that's another story. In any case, you have been associated with the case, and you did mention it very, very briefly, so I guess the cat is out of the bag. You've been mentioned in connection with the Billy Meyer case, and I think we're all curious to hear the real skinny about that. Well, uh, let's take it in harmonics. Let's take it in chapters. The first thing that I was asked to do, Wendell Stevens and Jim Lorenzen asked me if I could find people who would use equipment and processes, as I defined in a report, and test these pictures. The first pictures were the 40 APRO pictures in their set that we, we did the testing, but these pictures were the ones that Wendell Stevens had from the Billy Meyer case. We selected four, and uh, Wendell and Tom Welch went back to Switzerland next trip, got four slides, diapositives, the film that was in the camera, to uh, one of uh, Agva Gavard's or Siva Geike or somebody's processing lab and used uh, an innovation at the time, a laser scanner, and made a uh, four, four by five and two and a quarter diapositives, positives from a positive, and inner negatives, and those became our masters that we were going to take around to various people to test. My job was to take those images around to a variety of people and have them test them. And we went to some good ones. We went to, as I said, Bob Nathan at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. By the way, everyone signed a non-disclosure agreement. And everyone had us sign non-disclosure agreements because not only are we not supposed to be bringing these kind of images to Jet Propulsion Laboratory for them to test with public money at night, they don't want to be reprimanded. But, you know, I, we never met one lab that we went to where people were afraid of being fired or reprimanded or couldn't talk about it. It was more open than one might, might think. But we went to um, a few different manufacturing companies, to their demo facilities. We went to the Anti-Submarine Warfare Center. We went to USC. We went to UCLA. We saw top people, including Michael Malin, who went on to become the Mars Observer champion and Richard Hoagland's adversary, but Malin was very collaborative with us and he analyzed uh, four pictures using his own techniques. We didn't go to people and say, well, here, we want you to use these techniques. The point of the story is that in about two years of doing that, not one person, not one, said these are a hoax, here's how somebody did it, and not one person said, this is a small object. Because that's really one of the key things, is this is a large object or is it a small object? And how do you determine that? 
And um, after two years, to our satisfaction, no one had determined that it was a small object or found reasons to believe it was a hoax. Next was to find someone who could duplicate it. So Wally Gentleman and Linwood Dunn had a noted miniature and effects company in Los Angeles, Film Effects in Hollywood, made a uh, 16-inch and about a 24-inch replica of the uh, so-called Pleiadian Type II spacecraft. And uh, they were taken to Switzerland and photographed by Billy Meyer, Lee Elders, Wendell, a monofilament fish line, various cameras. And those images were brought back for analysis. I had gathered a couple people at my lab. In addition to my audio rental business, I now had a computer graphics equipment rental business, which was kind of innovative for the early 80s. Three different systems, and, and I'd gotten pretty skilled at using one of them. Anyhow, all of us as a group determined yeah, within five minutes that these models, these photographs of models, and they were pretty good, were models. Within a year then, there's a whole to-do from Ground Saucer Watch and Bruce McAbee and Cal Corf that these are a fake and that they've, quote, proven them to be a fake. Well, great. Let me see the proof. Let me see your process. Let me see your white paper. Let me see, you know, what becomes a proof. And, and at the time, Cal Corf was like a rabid dog, snarling, I'm going to get you guys. I'm going to prove this is a hoax. I mean, it was almost scary. That was when we first started encountering him. And over the years, a lot of other issues came up with the case. I mean, there was metal samples. We took to three different labs, including Marcel Vogel, at, um, working as one of the key guys at IBM um, Materials Processing Lab in San Jose, and a um, guy at National Testing Labs, uh, Walter Walker at a Arizona lab, and James Oberg, and um, I forget another guy, uh, had a sample that they were to get to... Uh, MIT. Of course, that sample became, yeah, it's just silver solder and we can't find it anymore. But even James Oberg with the Omni magazine was in on it at the time. All except Omni came up with, hey, this metal, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. This material cannot exist. Atomic elements, one through 59, all in the same substance. And that video report given by Marcel Vogel, you can find that on the, on, on YouTube in a few places. He did a, he's deceased now, but he did about a two hour video report through the microscope showing uh, some unusual properties to it. The special effects guys could not figure out themselves, other than making the models, how to get that degree of image clarity. We did some other very unique tests to see if it had been um, images had been superimposed. There's another analysis for checking if it's a beam splitter, and that is to look at the film grain in the image area, in addition to looking microscopically, looking at the film grain out in the sprocket area where the sprocket holes are. Because if you're superimposing two images. The film grain pattern at the atomic level is also optically transferred so that the, the, the merger of the two film grain patterns now lives in the new image. 
but there will not be two film grain patterns out in the sprocket area because when images are superimposed, you don't do it out in the sprocket area. That's the space in between, you know, the holes. I'll tell you, Jim, we're about to take our hourly break for a few minutes. So tell our listeners where can they get a hold of you? Toso, T-O-S-O, at cox.net, C-O-X dot net. I respond to every email I've ever gotten, sometimes belated, but I do answer my email. Neighbors, you can catch us on Twitter now, by the way. Go to twitter.com slash theparacast, twitter.com slash theparacast. Follow us and maybe we'll follow you. We'll have more with Jim Delatoso on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back with Jim Delatoso, UFO investigator, photographer, and you're talking about your experiences in working with the Billy Meyer photographs, which yes. are quite controversial, as you know. David, I think you have a few questions, don't you? Well, you know, the way that Jim and I first met was at the uh, next conference where uh, we were at a bar. And uh, if, I, if I remember this correctly, Jim, you overheard someone say my name. You're like, David Biedney? Because yeah. it turns out we have, a, we have a couple of good, close, mutual friends. Yes, Michael McKay. Michael McKay, uh, my buddy Andy Nittermeyer, who knows you. Oh, yeah, Andy, that's right. Andy, yeah, yeah. And, I haven't uh, seen Andy in decades. When yeah. I was actually doing photography, that's when I knew him. That's right. And he hadn't seen you in a long time either. But Michael is someone who I worked on some technology projects with, and we had befriended each other quite intensely. And uh, I guess he, he, you knew about me. We talked to you at this, uh, at this X conference. Some clips of that are infamous. When we specifically asked you, when I asked you about the wedding cake photos, yes. and your response in the show is, oh, those, those are miniatures. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. So those are miniatures. Now, Right. It doesn't mean that it's not the uh, top off of a spaceship. It just means it's a small object. It's about three feet across. It's not 20 feet. Well, you know, uh, we had the U.S. rep of the, the Meyer case come on our show and challenge me to analyze an image, which I did. Yes. I, I was given a JPEG file. I, I have, I and uh, myself and all other image analysts who have requested original film have all been denied. We've never been able to use any original information. So, yeah, I don't uh, think Michael Horn has access to that kind of material. Yeah, well, he challenged me to just de deconstruct an image, and I did, rather handily, rather easily, that it was a, yeah. a superimposed image. They're one of these uh, green light ships, and it was a, a, a Swiss lighting fixture. Was able to show how there were no shadows where there should have been shadows. Was actually able to do some interchannel analysis in Photoshop and and show the remnants of the black cloth on which this lighting fixture had been placed when shot that came through in the in the super imposed image. And I think I said it was a double exposed image. And and Horn was uh, was gleeful in proclaiming it's not double exposed. I have an a friend told me it was triple exposed. Biedny is wrong. Um, you know, meanwhile, sort of ignoring yeah. the fact that it was a fabricated image. You know, in the case of the wedding cake shots, uh, there were some nighttime shots where uh, it's pretty clear to see that we're looking at nothing but a miniature tree, miniature car, miniature little ship. The reflections on the little walls yeah, of the ship show the spotlights. I mean, so what we have there, I did not analyze 
any of the imagery that you, you say you looked at. I didn't look at any of that stuff, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna address any of that because all that I can address is stuff that I specifically was either a asked to look at or be looked at. Yes, and uh, we do none know of, that they made models there, right? Well, for their group, for their their Sunday meetings where they would have models on stands and. Billy would give his lectures, and right. this uh, this kind of spaceship uh, I flew around Earth in, and this kind of spaceship I flew out to their mothership. And um, I have heard many legends of how the organization that's grown up around Billy Meyer has taken control of what's public information and making their own photos and their own materials and having authorized representatives and all that and that's really too bad when that happens and it happens with a number of probably significant UFO cases where not only does the personality of the person seem to change over time and they want to continue with talking about the case and talking about what happened they want to stay in the limelight and organizations grow up around them that take over control of the story. So all I know about the Billy Meyer case is what we were exposed to from experiences he had in the 76 to 78 era, subsequent information, subsequent analysis and things I found, find uh, not convincing. So I agree with you on those uh, principles. And there's a pattern that exists in other UFO cases like that. You know, I mean, just pause for a second. You know, taking photographs and analyzing photographs, because that's sometimes all we have is we have photographs, we have sounds, we have blinking lights, the evidence that you have, the fingerprints that you have is what you have. But in a court of law, I've been an expert witness, by the way, in a few court cases, uh, a couple of murder cases involving um, image authentication. An eyewitness report, no evidence, an eyewitness report can testify against someone and put a man in jail for life. Sure, absolutely. But someone gives eyewitness testimony to something. I saw this. This is what happened to me. God forbid it would be an abduction. That story is dismissed as having no value. It's merely anecdotal. But to me, eyewitness reports without evidence and claims of contactees and abductees to me are more interesting because if extraterrestrials are really coming here, I, we're not going to find out about it by reading the report from a guy that knows the guy that saw the bodies or a guy that saw some report. I want to talk to a thousand abductees, of which 500 are lying, 400 made a mistake, 50 are delusional, etc. It only takes one, one, who's actually been inside an alien spacecraft, not only to say, yes, they do come here, but to understand why they're here and why are they hiding out. You know, well, I, I, there's not a and, government cover-up. Right, Jim, there's an alien cover-up. If they didn't want there to be a cover-up, there wouldn't be one. At the same time, you could certainly never, and, and I don't think, you know, we're talking about a murder case, we're talking about one thing, where yes. ultimately in the murder case, what you try to discover is motive, all right? Yes. Well, why did somebody kill somebody? And often, sentencing is based on motive. Yes. You know, was it premeditated? Was it an involuntary manslaughter? 
Was it an accident, right? So, so sentencing will be based on that. Um, when we look at UFO cases, we have heard, for example, like in, in discussing the Rendlesham Bentwaters case, we have highly credible witness testimony. We don't have a lot of evidence. We have extremely credible testimony. Yes. And, but what we don't have is a motive for people, for example, because people will say, well, maybe these guys are making it up. Well, why would they make it up? Yes. What's their motive? In the Meyer case, I personally feel, and I think that most of the most legitimate UFO researchers, and I don't consider myself to even be a UFO researcher. I'm just an experiencer who's interested in trying to cut through the crap. Most credible people looking at this stuff look at the cult that has been built around Meyer. And, yes. and we can't divorce Meyer from this because that's kind of the equivalent of trying to say that, well, there was this group around L. Ron Hubbard that created this yeah. thing that L. Ron had nothing to do with. Well, no, L. Ron specifically set out to do this thing and did it very successfully. And anybody who reads the story of L. Ron Hubbard realizes that he, he was a lot of things. He was certainly not a dumb guy. He, he did exactly what he set out to do. In the case of Meyer, there have been people who have suggested that perhaps there were some real sightings that he had early on but then he felt like he now had to create this ongoing set of evidence to extend his mythology, his mythology painting himself as a savior, as yeah. a messiah. So you have that messianic motivation that is clear that he doesn't deny. And then you have an entire, and again, let's, I'm going to take whatever there was as far as, and you know, you brought up Marcel Vogel. Marcel Vogel was not a metallurgist. So uh, that's just the fact. He was not a metallurgist. Yeah. He was a materials person. His area of expertise yeah. actually was in ceramics and phosphorescent materials. Guy was not a metallurgist. So when a metallurgist gives me a, an analysis on a metal, that's one thing. When a guy who's a ceramics guy does it, that's another thing. Okay. And and I don't want to, you know, and I've been accused of somehow trying to tarnish Marcel Vogel's reputation and background. He seems to me like a really interesting guy, a guy I would have liked to have met, actually. So I don't, I'm not interested in doing that in that case. What, what concerns me personally about the Meyer case is the vast amount of material that, to my trained eyes, is obviously fabricated. And then, beyond that, the creation of a cult that then attempts to yes. Dismiss other UFO cases because that's a big part of what the Meyer thing is. He's, you know, well, this is, you know, don't ignore the rest of this. I am the Messiah. And, and oh, by the way, like Horn has said, we'll disregard the visual evidence. It's all about the prophecies. That's, that's got all the signs of a sham. Yeah. It just does to a reasonable thinking person. And I know, Jim, that recently you were on a show with a guy who. Uh, and it's funny, was promoting himself as Cal Court's best friend for the last three years, four years, and, and now has turned on him. That would be Rob McConnell from X-Zone Radio. Oh, yeah, Rob McConnell. Yeah. Right, okay. McConnell, who's now turning on Corf, but McConnell, who basically has said, oh, yeah, Horn, you're right, Billy Meyer is a prophet, I believe it. And now he has turned on Cal Corf when indeed... He was giving Korf a platform for years from which to spout Korf's nonsense, because Korf is a delusional lunatic. We all know that. That's pretty obvious now. All right? I think that's actually sad in that 
Korf at one point may have done some useful, may have, notice I'm saying may have, done some useful stuff around the Meyer case, but Korf is his own worst enemy. Korf is insane. So, you know, you've got that then. And Korf is, is really, to even mention his name on the show, it sort of makes me feel a little dirty because, like you, I've become one of his targets. Many people who we feel are credible UFO, UFO research have become his target. His oh, really? Is, You're one of his targets now, too? Oh, oh, oh please. Yeah. Yeah, he's been, you know, talking about how I've been threatening his life, whatever, which is just a bunch mm. of crap. I've okay, gotten, the guys, by the way, I've gotten a few of those things, too, but... I don't think I get it quite as badly as David. I don't know why, because I agree with David 100% about that. But, well, the bottom line, though, is that, you know, Korf is, is, is noise. Horn is noise. Um, yeah. You know, he's attached to himself to the Meyer thing to have credibility. But what happened was when you went on the McConnell show and you made your statements about the Meyer material, McConnell has used that now to bolster his statement that, uh, that Billy Meyer is indeed a prophet. And see, Jim Dilatoso said that he doesn't know what those images are, so uh, Meyer's a prophet. In the same way that Horn has been misrepresenting anything you've said for how many years, and you weren't aware I've of that when I first met Horn. Right. So you've got this incredible volume of junk flying around. Yes. All right. And you have people who are saying, you know what, you can look at the data, and the data is valid. But then you also have to look at the framework in which the data floats. Because, you know, this is the deal. Ultimately, there is data, but then there are human beings who are involved in moving this data around and misquoting people. And, you know, I, again, I, I, we even, for a long time, we didn't refer to Horn as Horn. He was the he who shall not be named. Because of, we've just named him. Right. <laughs> well... But he's he's gone around for uh, for years now, sort of trashing us, and then making us out to be the bad guys because I was able to prove that some of these images were fake. So the thing is, if I say to you, "Hey, Jim Dolatosa, you think Billy Myers the reincarnation of Christ?" What would be your response to that? I don't remember being asked the question, but my response would certainly be no. Okay, <laughs> I think that sums it up. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Jim Delatosa joining us on The Paracast. He does not believe that Billy Meyer is the reincarnation of Christ. All right. He's well, that makes, progress. Progress that, makes, that makes me That makes me feel a little better, actually. All right. <laughs> Well, right. no, because, look, you actually, Jim, 
and we'll, we'll come clean on this now, all right? Okay. You've asked me to look at some stuff for you uh, in the time that we've known each other. You've asked me to look at some images yes. for you. And I, in, in a couple of cases, got racked back to you and said, nah, not interesting. Because I think you've come to understand by our mutual friends that I'm someone who, I mean, I'm involved with this topic because I'm someone who's seen some crazy stuff. I've seen one of those cigar craft with things coming out of it personally. And when you see something like that, now all of a sudden you have a vested interest in trying to figure out what the hell it is you saw. That goes beyond publicity. Uh, certainly we, um, you know, like McConnell pointed out, you've had a huge amount of media exposure as an analyst of this stuff. Um, I've been featured on exactly zero shows. You know, the Paracast is pretty much the only sandbox I play in in this stuff. I haven't been asked to go on TV. I haven't been asked to do any of, any of that stuff because I'm someone who, and we were talking about this right at the opening of the show, I mean, we've created enemies on all sides of the fence because we're trying to take this rationalist approach, which uh, is definitely in the minority, okay? Most people want to believe, they want to believe in something like Billy Meyer as someone who's communicating with extraterrestrials. What we say here on the Paracast is we don't know what the hell it is we're looking at here? You know, like you said earlier, a UFO is just that. It's a UFO. It's an unidentified flying object. To associate, to attach anything to it, you know, when people immediately attach the term extraterrestrial, for, for those of us looking at this stuff with intellectual honesty, that's a huge mistake. We don't know where the stuff sources from. It could be interdimensional. Yes. We don't know, right? We don't know. So, if we knew what they were, we'd call them IFOs. Identified flying objects. Well... Another case you've been associated with is the Phoenix Light stuff, right? Yes, because it was in my own backyard. Right. So I'm going to ask you a hard question about the analysis. Now, you did analysis on those lights, the ones that everybody sees when they hear, when they see any kind of a show on the topic. There's always the same piece of video footage that's shown. Yes. Which is a series of lights. Talk to us about that, please. The event happened from... 7.30 to 10.30, diagonally northwest to through Phoenix, southeast to Tucson. Witnesses reports all along the way, turn around and come back. There's only video taken at 8.30 and 10.30. Images at 10.30 are the ones that I have been exposed to the most. And when you have balls in the sky at night, you're not given a lot of information to work with, but it's what right. you have. Right. So you match it to daytime shots, you look at the, make histograms of all the lights from the lights on the ground to the lights in the sky, look at the rate at which they move, and you analyze um, how close or far away they might be. It's difficult to do with a single camera, but there were cameras actually in four different places scattered around the valley for that late evening event and it wasn't until um, about two weeks after the event when there was denials from both Air Force bases that they had anything to do with what was going on that we even started considering that they might be flares. We were taking the events at face value. I didn't know that there was a, a gunnery range 80 miles away that dropped flares every now and then. Can't see that from Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So once there was the issue of could it be flares, let's go find out the optical properties of flares. Let's get 
some experts in who make flares and use them and find out the characteristics, knowns to put in the database because that's my technique. I have characteristics of knowns in the database and try to get a match. And uh, we found no evidence, nothing that would indicate that those were flares. They have a different, over time, frame to frame, you measure the histogram, the brightness across the entire image, which is called the sigma. Measure that frame to frame, you know, 30 frames a second, 60 seconds, two and a half minutes. We got 4,000 frames to deal with. So we would uh, grab every hundredth frame, extract the data, make a chart, measure it. And even street lights on the ground have a slight oscillation to them. If you made a graph of the brightness, and the bottom is black and the ramp goes up to the top, that's white, and measure any variations in that. You look at the unknown object and the ramp, the graph is so different than any other images in the picture, and in particular flares, that that was sufficient evidence for us to say, not flares. Well, now here's the question before you continue. What kind of tape stock were you analyzing from? What kind of what? Tape stock. What kind of tapes were the shot at? They varied. One person had a uh, Sony Hi8 that was in Hi8 mode. One person had a a Hi8 camera that was in 8 mode. Mm-hmm. One person had a VHS RCA camera, and it was in garbage mode. It was like a VHS um, camera, right? VHSC. Right. Okay. So the point is, is this is 1997. Right. So the image quality that people would have at home was uh, compromised for what it could be now. But there's a couple things that happened. Analog and analog images uh, are, generally speaking, if you have the tape that was in the camera, it's unquantized. You have certain data that is not in a digital image, such as blooming and, uh, and modulation. When brightness oversaturates uh, CCD, or even an old days, you know, a tube camera, Blooming happens. The the object gets brighter than it really is, and it eats some of the uh, the uh, ramping brightness from the pixels around it and creates an artifact that's even a, a black shadow. It's not kind of there. It, There's a number, yeah, number it, of other factors. The point is that uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't really good imagery to work with, but in the same image, the same camera had shot lights on the street, et cetera, et cetera. And weeks later, we had the same cameras shoot flares, actual flares. Went to the gunnery range, different distances, shot the flares that were going off there, compared those. So camera quality is not good. There's artifacts created in it. But um, we were able to recreate the elements of oversaturation, and what happens with each of those cameras when lights of varying degrees of whiteness, you know, because some are a little more blue, some are a little more orange, etc., when it looks white, that we were not able to duplicate or get the same information 
on the same camera as the unknown objects that night. Now, there's a lot more that can be done, but remember, we're not on anyone's payroll. Right. Where we're, we're to say, well, we're going to only spend 500 man hours on this. Right. So you do the best that you can with the, with the equipment that you have, and we have, I have to say, the finest, the finest equipment, and um, for being able to do these kind of things. So, you know, we did a good job, and we did, we did, well, we did. Uh, well, what, what, I stand by the results on that, but there's still more data that could come in. Well, well here's the thing. It's a question sure. about that because. In talking to a number of the witnesses about mm -hmm. the Phoenix Lights episodes, it, it's I, I, at least I think, and I think that a lot of the people who were were part of the event, who saw these things, seem to agree that there was an extremely that, that we have we have really almost two separate events. We have the thing that happened earlier in the evening with this extremely yes. large silent craft. Yes. The one that people like Mike Fortson saw, the one that Fife Symington later claimed that he actually did see. Yes. Um ton of credible witnesses who talked about this craft in the earlier evening, this extremely large silent craft with certain types of motion characteristics, a huge, massive scale with some lights emanating from it that was at very low altitude, totally silent. We have that thing that was seen by a lot of credible people. Then later, we have these lights that, that we're talking about right now, that there are some people, there's one person who's been on our show, I won't mention her name, but she's taken that later event, she's actually sort of attempt to ignore the pre, the earlier event, she's taken the later thing, and she's turned yep. it into a religious movement, that it's the Space Brothers here to help us awaken from our dark blah, blah, blah. All right. And she has sadly referenced you as the technical person supportive of that. All right. So, 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 so we have a problem here, right? We have a problem that we know something happened that night. We're not questioning that. We have no visual evidence from earlier in the evening, but a ton of really great witness testimony. Really just unquestionable witness testimony. Yes. Over Which, 700 witnesses we interviewed in a yeah. six-month period at Village Labs. Absolutely. I mean, there's, like, there's no question something happened earlier in the evening. But when we're talking about the later thing, right, you're talking about analog cameras. And there are concerns about that because you're talking about cameras that did not have any kind of real useful low-lux characteristics. They were shooting right. stuff at night. They were shooting lights in the sky at night, like the worst possible thing you can shoot with, a, yes. with an analog camera. Right, um, with the autofocus on. With the autofocus on, you, you know it, right? So I would say to you, you're doing that testing later on, recreating this. Do you yes. shoot flares from a similar distance? Because I have to believe that if you shot flares... Oh, yeah. From, from miles away? We shot them from exactly the same spot. In fact, we did it again as recently as two weeks ago with the camera used 20, uh, that 12 years ago, uh, a um, high 8 digital camera and a Betacam SP. And we had in our frame store two computers on site from that same position, what Mike had shot years ago, and our um, Antonio Chang, our Adobe After Effects expert, who was um, 
superimposing old images to new, matching them after he had done uh, motion stabilization with After Effects, so we could try to match up every single frame, and left the cameras locked down until the following morning, turned them back on, so we had the daytime shots. Right. And we did that from two other locations that were were from 1997. This is just a couple weeks ago. For our GPS, we did a coordinate value of how high would the flares have had to have been, 80 miles away, at that brightness. And we used uh, 3D Studio Max and Maya to create a 3D model and uh, map in the luminance brightness of the flares as defined by the ordnance officer in the public information office at uh, Davis Monthan Air Force Base, where we got the information on what flares they used and mapped those into Maya, went back to the position by GPS of where the um, witnesses had made their videotapes, mm -hmm. did a uh, mental ray, ray tracing, to recreate the uh, optical brightness of what would be seen from that position. And from none of them can you even see the flares. First of all, they would have to be 46,000 feet in altitude. Pretty high for a flare. Yeah, and the, and the brightness, you just, you just can't see them. You couldn't see those flares. They're, they're not the same flares as are used now. These are called more to call ignition flares, electronic okay. ignition flares are what are used now. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking with Jim Delatoso, UFO photographer, investigator, and we're talking about the Phoenix Lights trying to duplicate the same effect. But the long and short of it is, and I, maybe we want to get away from some of the super technological stuff about photography because not everybody's okay. an expert photographer. Just get the highlights. Oh, of really? Here. I thought there was going to be a test later. Actually, David, after the show is over, <laughs> David is going right. to beam down to your location in Phoenix. Right. And he's going to test you. And if you don't succeed, he will have the Cybermen take over your brain. Okay, you know I need a vacation, so uh, everyone should be on the lookout. I may, I may just spin the results so I can walk right out of here. You know what, David and I in the first part of the show were talking about whether we should take a vacation and have a substitute host. But seriously speaking, then to duplicate this effect, these things would have to be awfully high in the sky. Right. Okay. And we did it objectively. I mean, we weren't trying. We're not rabid about it. And when we approach it, it's not me, a lone wolf out here working by myself. And I always talk about it and I always show, you know, my whole staff and everybody that works on it. And I'm frequently not the smart guy. I'm just 
the leader of the pack. We've got some really bright young people and old guys that we've always had. I mean, we've always had a really quite capable group of people around, and I give them their own latitude to use what hardware and what software, what approaches they want to do. I, I kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi them when I can, but we did a best effort, team effort, to um, do this uh, back then and to do it now. And in 1997, video, frame grab, frame store, graphics cards, etc., was a whole different circumstance than it is now. Uh, let alone the number, the kind, the kind of cameras that existed then. So, the uh, analysis of every single frame and running the various filters and, and using the uh, we used high-end software. We used um, uh, Bill Crumb's. Uh, Media Cybernetics package, which is still to this day the uh, the standard in um, in uh, image analysis. But um, you know, Jim, the the question I would yeah. have for, about that, you know, you look at the dynamic range of mm -hmm. analog videotape, you know, yes, which is which is the source that you've got for most of the stuff you'd look right. at in those years, right? Yeah, we pray for sixteen gray levels. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean. Ultimately, what kind of spectrographic analysis can you do on the equivalent of what today would be single chip? Because we're not talking, you know, we're talking right. about, you know, if you've got a high A tape, then you've got some chrominance and luminance separation. But yep. if you've got a VHSC tape or an 8 millimeter tape, you've got everything munged together. You've got everything, you know, multiplexed right. together where, right. you know, between the really sort of low end characteristics of, uh, the light amplifiers of those things, between the really mm -hmm. gross nature of that mechanical tape mechanism. You know, people have forgotten the idea of, like, like in audio, no one knows what wow and flutter is anymore. I know. Now, that's gone now. Now you have quantization issues, right? Yes. But talking about analog gear, I mean, in, in the case of, you know, you're talking about blooming, or, you know, I, I think of things going back to the... Um, like live television, I'm forgetting the names of those uh, cameras, the fluoroscope cameras that they use. Like if you go look at old, like Ernie Kovacs TV, the stuff yeah. they were using for live video then, which has the blooming characteristics you're talking about in a real obvious way. But when you're talking about all of that analog gear, ultimately, you're talking about, you know, doing spectrographic analysis on a video medium where there's just not a whole lot of information okay. to begin with. Let's, let's define uh, spectrographic. It's not spectrographic like spectrum analysis in astronomy. I'm using spectrographic like the origin of the word, color spectrum. We're doing a histogram on all the individual lights to look at not just the luminance, the brightness characteristics, but I want to make a fingerprint of the red, green, and blue color spectrum content of every pixel in that object. And when we define that histogram as a mean with radians, we, we do a you know a clock face on it and do a, a radian from the center so that we, we measure not just every pixel inside but along an axis. And we create a fingerprint of data at those intersection points. That's all we have. I mean, it's like a finger. It's like a crime scene. It says, well, the guy, when he ran out the door, he didn't leave a full set of digital fingerprints on the glass. He only left a piece of his thumb. That's what we have to work with. I mean, we wish there would have been better cameras, but the data was the data. So 
one of the, the th not one of the thing we always do first is do a his after we've done digitizing and getting it in in a raw or a bitmap format tiff sometimes we uh, do a histogram we do a histogram of the entire image we do a we do specialized regional histograms of the different objects we do color segmentation histograms like dividing up a ball of light into pieces of a pie and getting averages of the section of the pie so you can get some of the spatial functions to say is that a coin you know is it a disc or is it a sphere is that a golf ball or is that a paddle is that a basketball or is that the moon and what are the as you know with the characteristics of the edges and of the color contours, what a painter, what an artist does when they're painting, whether it's paint-by-number kit or Rembrandt, they do things to the edges and to the contour to make this is a basketball at 10 feet away, and this is the moon at a quarter million miles away, but in the freeze frame, they're both two inches of canvas and paint. There are a lot of things that, that come up there. I think one of the issues I have with the way you're using the term histogram is that um, when you're doing a histogram, basically you're doing the equivalent of a statistical analysis of the, the number of pixels at a certain yes. right range. Okay. That's now, whether you, right, whether you do that histogram on, an, on a channel by channel basis, right? And um, a frame by frame. And a frame by frame basis. Frames. Sure. Okay. Now, now that's very, that's very different information, for example, than what a waveform vector scope will give you. Yeah, we use a vector scope waveform a lot. I mean, in, in video, it, looking at switching heads and uh, the time-based information at the switching point and the back porch and pedestal to be able to tell us if the video has been tampered with, has it been chin-locked or superimposed, and the right. brightness right. levels and all that. In fact, Ken Liljegren here at Spectrum is a uh, vector scope waveform monitor expert in engineering as is Doug, so those techniques we use, which no one really ever talks about, I think you're probably the first person that ever brought it up, but that's a key thing to do on videotape. I mean, pre-digitizing pre is to spend time with the vector scope and waveform monitor. We'll look it's at that for an hour or two sometime, a group of us in a room, and look mm -hmm. at the vector scope waveform images on our video projectors. Right. And talk about it for a long and, time. And what people need to understand is that in the world of video, this is actually how you do color correction because you have a series mm -hmm. of set ranges of frequency where, for example, flesh tones should appear. And the point is that, you know, basically, how do you do color correction? Well, you have a baseline reference, you have a mm -hmm. series of, of color values that where certain types of, let's say, ethnic skin tones should show up. Um, yeah. It's going to be different for, let's say, uh, Caucasians versus Asians versus African Americans. You'll have, you know, co skin colors, different values based on the ethnic group, and, and literally, you have a certain range of colors that are what's supposed to be the accurate color values based on a certain type of lighting characteristic. Colors will look different under incandescent lights versus fluorescent lights. Not to take all of this discussion in that in that direction. Okay, but, but there are issues you know, that exist in advance that everybody needs to have at least done a few times. You're, you're right about that. Something right. people doing analysis need to know about, have done it, and know that it exists when you're selecting your 
your arrow out of your quiver of what tests are we going to do to get that data. Right, right. And, and so that's all good and fine. But, for example, right, in, in, and, and I'm just saying, in even looking at the lights from the Phoenix Lights events, the lights from later in the evening, the video that everybody assumes is what everybody's talking about, but again, keep mentioning it because it's relevant, Phoenix Lights episodes, two separate episodes. Um, earlier one mostly ignored, later one with the lights. I'd say to you that in the analysis of the video from later on, I'd almost be more interested in looking at, A, how many people saw those specific lights, how much footage was shot from different positions of those lights, but then most importantly, B, what was the motion of those lights? You see, if... Yes. Right? Because ultimately, what do we know about the earlier craft? Well, this thing moved in a certain horizontal direction. The lights that emanated from it, which were, did look nothing like the lights from later on, much bigger lights, much less likely to ever be confused with flares. They also obviously were not flares. But what we have later on, and, and I have to admit to you, Jim, I have not seen the full duration of the footage of what you analyzed from later on. What I would tell okay. you is that, separate from any spectrographic or histogram issues related to those lights, if those lights came on in a certain sequence at a certain altitude and then had a downward motion at a certain speed and then gradually faded out, I don't know. I haven't seen the footage, but if they did that and the yep. rate at which they all came down made it so that they were staggered, I would be concerned about... That's what we have. What you just described yeah. is in the the uh, Mike Kristen images, that's what we have. And a few of us here uh, were talking a month ago and said, you know, we really need to do this again. And it was uh, Antonio, who's our uh, After Effects guru here, 23 or 4 years old, he's really masterful at it, goes to grieve... Uh, from Arizona State University in uh, image uh, processing, but uh, prefers After Effects over anything else. And he came up with this technique that we should that we should use to superimpose and then simulate, which we did. If a jet airplane was flying, what would its flight path have to be? And dropping the flares out, how would they be spaced? When would they come on? And how would they fall? Right. And just because I didn't find optical characteristics of flares doesn't mean that I dismissed the fact that they were flares. It just means I didn't find in that analysis anything that I could get a match in the database. But as you said, we had analog cameras, we had you know, a different era of analysis, and then we decided to do it again. And that's what it looks like we have is a jet flying from southwest to northeast at a two-degree incline between 360 and 380 knots, releasing flares that all come on at a given time and duration, and then gently fall as a group, mm -hmm. go behind the mountain. Yeah. 
You know, Neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is one and one Internet. One and one Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on one and one Internet to get online and stay online. Right now, One in One Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, One and One Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I'll tell you what, folks, we have one more segment to spend with Jim Delatoso, UFO researcher, photographer, and we're discussing his analysis of the second phase of Phoenix Lights, the ones that were blamed on flares. Now, kind of to summarize this, because we are not graced with a lot of time. Okay. In, in the end, you seem to feel here that, that at least some or all of the flares or alleged flare-type things that we saw and the second group of sightings, the very popular photographs that we see, the movies yes. and everything, they may have been something other than just flares. They may have been, but it, it, there's a requirement to exhaust the analysis towards it being flares because it's in the direction of flares. They drop flares there all the time. The Maryland National Guard said that they dropped flares that night at 8.30. Well, actually, they said they were back on the ground at 8.30, according to the public information officer. But nonetheless, and, and Maya in our simulation says that uh, we're at 46,000 feet. That's an element. It's like going to the doctor who sends you to the urologist and the proctologist and test the blood. You might get different results towards each of those, and the doctors don't agree on what the problem is. No one test is definitive. No 10 tests are definitive. And particularly when there's a, a groundswell of demand to know and a lot of hand grenade tossing, you, you keep doing it and try to figure out what it is. I'm not trying to defend my reputation. I'm trying to figure out what it is. I don't usually get up there and do that, try to explain myself or defend anything. I just keep on doing what I'm doing. The Phoenix Lights... Uh, appears, David said, to be more than one event, at least two major categories. Mm -hmm. And the event at the end of the night, there are reasons to keep considering the probability and possibility it could be flares. But what flew over the state was something completely different. 
would um, uh, the government agencies say, hey, there's something really huge going on. Let's get out there and drop flares as a decoy. You bet. Good thinking. Yeah. So, so you understand why a lot of us have concerns about that. And, and why we feel that yet something, again, you know, like what you said earlier, and I think it's relevant, that, you know, te- witness testimony will put somebody in jail, put somebody in the death chair, yes. you know, clearly. So we have a huge amount of credible witness testimony from earlier in that evening that something happened. And we have a lot of concerns about the video footage that was, was seen later, and, and especially. Yes. So, okay, so you're in agreement with that potential stance. Yes. I think you should uh, take a look at uh, what Antonio did a few uh, weeks ago. Yeah, I'd actually like to see that stuff. A simulation. And uh, weren't you involved with Adobe After Effects as a teacher, a trainer, and a guru? Uh, Man, I... uh, I, uh, Is that a different David Biedney on the Internet that it says that that's what he did? Are you that guy? I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I actually, uh, at an early, the very first show where COSA, the original company, Company of Science and Art. Oh, yeah, sure, I remember COSA. Uh, Alvy Ray very, Smith told me about them. Well, you know, and I used to do work, I used to consult for Alvy Ray Smith, but that's a whole other story on yeah. Altamira Composer. I used to work for him. I, I loved Altamira Composer. I was one of the, he gave me oh, a beta copy. Dude, that to pro- use. I loved that. Oh, no, I oh, loved no. that. No, he didn't, because it sucked. It had all these problems, and when I tried to... No, I loved it. You could do uh, compositing. That's all that mattered, and Flint Flame and Inferno cost a lot of money. Oh, you could do the same (laughs) stuff in Photoshop if you knew how to use layers properly, and I'm telling you. It was Aldous. It wasn't Photoshopped in. It was Aldous Photo Styler. Oh, no. Photo Styler was a separate product that actually... Don't let's not go. Let's not do this because then we'll go down that road. No, but I we're love it, getting though. into the tech show here. You know, we should yeah. really have you and David talk right. about technology with photo image mm-hmm. editing for my tech radio yeah. show. That's actually fun, and then we can give a real test on the air later and win prizes for people. Oh, there you go. Okay. I'm we're sure we're going to give an evening but. with David is going to be the main prize. Okay. Yes. Okay. But here's the thing, Jim. I mean, you understand. And again, let me tell you right now. All right. There are going to be people who, when they hear the show, they're going to say, wait a minute, you didn't bring up the uh, that article from the Phoenix New Times. You didn't bring oh, up yeah, that article. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. They're going to mention that. They're going to yeah. ask why we didn't spank you harder over the Billy Meyer stuff because, like I said. about all that. I don't mind being spanked. Sometimes you have to pay extra for that. Yeah, well, you know. Don't get me started. Well, no, no, no. That's, that's I thought we have free spanking sessions because of the Fourth of July weekend when the show is first being broadcast. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, Jim's the wrong gender for me to engage in that free spanking session. But I uh, don't mind being taken to task on any case or any analysis technique. It's how you work things out. To me, it's a discussion. It's not a defense of what I said or what I did. And in fact, you know, there's always an improvement in techniques. You know, one always stands by their work but looks for better ways of doing things. And uh, unfortunately, over the years, when I might have been the only person or the leader of the pack doing something, all the arrows would get fired at me. And that's okay. That's the job that you have when you're out there with a group. But uh, it's all for developing critical thinking, hard, pounding discussions about things, either fix them or improve them. Or throw them away, but uh, you know it makes for more exciting radio too. 
<laughs> we wouldn't know what makes for exciting radio on this show. We have no clue. Don't know about that. We never know. But but no, seriously. I mean, the New Time story. I thought the New Time story. I mean, I know uh, Mike Lacey and Jim Larkin that own the New Times and the other New Times. They also own the Village Voice. I've known them for years. And uh, they wanted uh, to do another story, and uh, they don't control what their writers do. And Tony Ortega, that wrote that story, is now the editor at the Village Voice. But uh, he was uh, skeptical about it. He spun the story his own way. I don't think the problem was with the way that Tony spun the story. It was the, with the way that Cal Corf and Motzer and others extracted out of that story what they wanted put their own embellishments or fabrications on it, and circulated that around as fact. That was where the real problems were. And, and, and for me to this day, I mean, it was things that were said out of that story that were not in the story but were fabricated that they were in the story, mostly by Calcor. People find on the Internet, and, and you know, I've been dropped from committees at my daughter's grammar school because other people in our neighborhood Googled me and found claims of me being a con man and sued in court by investors for stealing money, none of which ever even remotely happened, never even been accused of it. But I was kicked off of a uh, a fundraising committee for raising $1,000 for a kid's playground because I'm a con man. They didn't want me in. They didn't want me in the group. You know what? I, I mean, would think that maybe they would have wanted you to come there to raise more money for them. Yeah, that's right. I could do it, but I mean, is, I mean, nothing that you could, that we could clarify or fix in this radio show would fix the dozens, dozens of crucial, important projects that I've been involved with that I've been dropped from or kicked out of because of those stories. I'm talking about food and agriculture projects with 10, 20 scientists, researchers, professors involved in a monthly basis for two, three years of a project in Nebraska. That one day at a big meeting, some snot-nosed kid that was uh, one of the interns working for one of the professors was mad because our ag project was picked instead of his and dropped 50 pages of Cal Corf, New Times, etc. in front of every person. He had stapled them together that night to prove Jim Delatoso is a scumbag and we shouldn't do this agriculture project with him. Why haven't you stopped Jim Delatoso? Why haven't you defended yourself? What about this? You've never told us you're involved in UFO research, let alone you're considered a scumbag in UFO research. A double punch. Get out of here. And you take your people with you. Not that quick. It took all day in that room to discuss it and talk about it to where it's finally become, well, the energy has shifted, let's dissolve the project. And that has happened to me many times. I would think, Jim, that you have a legal case here. If something published is wrong... A guy hiding out in the subways in Czechoslovakia? Well, maybe not him, maybe the New Times. No, the, what the New Times said was well within their legal rights to say. They said you can't do spectrum analysis. I claim you can do spectrum analysis. They talked to a grad student, assistant of a professor, and made it look like it was the professor that said that what I was doing was a con. And uh, the New Times 
Tony Ortega. I mean, I, I, I would meet with Tony and Richard Ruelas and others. After that, we'd go on a radio show and debate about it. And then we'd go to the bar and have drinks. I'm not mad at them. The story was the story. If I was going to do anything, the statute of limitations is up. And what's done is done. I mean, anything that was true, I didn't want people to know about, you can't hide that. Any lie that was told, you're not going to fix it. All you do is keep on doing what you're doing and try to do better in the future. And that's where I am now. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I could chase a whole bunch of people. And I did file a lawsuit against CalCorp about six, seven years ago. Spent a lot of money on process servers trying to get them served. Forget it. Couldn't find them. I wondered if that, if he knew about that and found out about all that. And that's why he moved. Did open letters telling him the suit against him. I even published on UFO Mind. Anyhow, who else can we pick on? <laughs> We've never picked on David. I never pick on David on the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people pick on me. Well, you know, you know, Corf continues to accuse me of things, and uh, and Rob McConnell has let a number of people come on and 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 you know slander my name. It's yeah. interesting how what you brought me up to him as one of the people you go to for stuff. He just let that slide. He didn't, you know, he didn't he didn't respond. Yeah. There was a reason for that. Uh, you know, he knows that. Well, I mean, you know, like I said, next time you go on his show, ask him why he facilitated. CalCorp's platform for years. Well, he enabled Corp to go on and, and speak stuff about a whole lot of people. I mean, see, this is the problem, Jim, in that you have guys like McConnell who call themselves a researcher and who are professional entertainers. They don't research anything. Like I said, yes. um, you know, he, he gave Corp a platform for years, every Friday night, to yes. go on and, and spew stuff that were just obvious lies. And and actually, oddly enough, what's kind of ironic about this, and I don't know that a lot of people know this, is that one night when he was on with, when uh, McConnell hosted a debate between him and Horn, I called their show to help defend Cal Corf. Wow, they, they debated each other? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'd like to have heard that. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, ask, <laughs> ask McConnell to give you a copy. Well, I called up. And McConnell ended up cutting me off. And my name has been brought up on that show many times, almost always in a disparaging way. You were one of the only people who ever went on there. And when you mentioned my name, I could hear, I could kind of, you could, and because I listened to your interview on there, you could kind of hear McConnell go, oh, God, you know, I hope he keeps going. Oh, yeah. I didn't know he thought that. I, I mean, I didn't even think anything about it. I mean, he, he asked me the question of, are there any other people that I go to? I respect their opinion. So you... Dropped in out of the sky, right into my head, rolls off my tongue. I think it was me and Bruce McAbee, so I was in good company. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but, well, you but go the problem. Well, but the problem, though, at this point is that, uh, as now that, and I promise you there'll be listeners of the show now, will hear okay. the fact that you and I have talked offline, and yeah. they'll be like, well, wait a minute, well, we can't trust Biedney now. So they'll yeah, be that. That's right. And, and what's right. worse is because <laughs> the fact that Jim and I live not that far apart what's going to happen is maybe the next time he's on the show he'll be doing it from here we might go to lunch or something my god it's yeah terrible. that's right sure Remember, i lived in manhattan for years and grew up in connecticut virginia and come to north carolina that's what we could do is we could lecture together at the rhine lab at duke university that really it'll, throw everybody off it'll be like uh, what's his name when uh, uh oh the watergate guy what's his name uh was on a tour with uh Oh, yeah, Liddy and uh, Timothy and, Leary. Right. Yeah. Who are you going to be, Leary or, or, or Liddy? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd rather be leery, but I mean, I'll be Liddy if you want me to. I'll tell you uh, what, guys, we're about out of time, totally out of time here. Jim, if we who's get, she going to be? We're out of time, guys. Okay, oh, so no. you're going to be Liddy and David's going to be Leary or vice versa. Well, you can fight it out later. Maybe you can just change Can I be James Steinberg one day? Oh, no, you don't want to do that. They'll be okay. throwing tomatoes at you. By the way, yes. Jim, tell people where they can get a hold of you. My email is the following, toso, T-O-S-O, at cox, C-O-X dot net. I have no website. I have nothing for sale, but I do communicate. Sounds good to us. Jim Delatoso, <laughs> thank you for joining us this week on The Thank Paranormal. you. Thanks Keep for... on doing what you're doing, fellas. I love it. Yeah. Bye-bye. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.